You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. How many of you have ever heard the saying that, you know, people don't change, that a leopard can't change its spots, you know? How many of you ever heard that said before, that people never change? Once a liar, always a liar. Once a cheater, always a cheater. You know, that's what people say, that a leopard doesn't change its spots. But perhaps the most basic fundamental teaching or truth that Christianity espouses is that People can and do change by the power of God, that God can intervene in somebody's life and God can change a person, that God can even reach anybody. He can transform people. He can make them into new people. In our study today, we're going to be seeing that principle in action in the life of a man named Saul. The title of today's message is Pursued by God. And here's what we're going to see in this section. First, we're going to see a lost cause. Secondly, we're going to see the God who pursues. And thirdly, we're going to see a changed man. So, a lost cause, the God who pursues, and a changed man. Let's begin by talking about this man who was a lost cause. You know, I was looking through some of my old yearbooks uh, a while back. And in one of my yearbooks, I found an interesting note, you know, from somebody who had signed my yearbook. His name was David Larson. And this is what he wrote in my yearbook. He said, Nick... You are the most evil person I know, but you'll probably become a pastor. Have a good summer. David Larson. So how many of you know a person who you would say that person seems to be a lost cause? It seems that they're so set in their ways. They're not open to hearing about anything. They're never going to change. They're just a lost cause. How many of you have ever thought, you know, sure, yeah, God can do anything. God can reach anybody. Except for that guy, right? Or that, or that woman, right? God can reach anybody. It, I'm not really sure about her though, right? Uh, she's just not interested in changing. How can somebody change if they're not interested, right? She, she just doesn't listen. He, he has hardened his heart so much. Nothing is getting through to this person. It just seems like there's nothing that can be done. It just seems like he, she, well, they're just a lost cause. In the history of people who were considered lost causes, let me tell you, there were very few who were a greater lost cause than this man named Saul of Tarsus. Please read with me from Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We first met this man, Saul of Tarsus, back in chapter 7 of this book of Acts, when we saw that he was an enthusiastic supporter of the execution of a man named Stephen, who was a leader amongst the early Christians. Saul and others, they believed that Stephen's beliefs about Jesus constituted blasphemy. See, Stephen and the other Christians, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus was even God himself come to earth. And Saul, he, he saw this as blasphemy, as did many of the Jews. And Saul personally oversaw the execution of that man, Stephen, back in chapter 7. You know, amongst the Jewish establishment of that day, Saul was a rising star. We know from other writings that Saul was a student of the famed rabbi Gamaliel, who was a very prestigious teacher of that day. He was considered the teacher of teachers. 
And so to be a student of Gamaliel was a very prestigious thing. Saul, we also know that he became a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council at a very young age. He was a rising star in Judaism and he was extremely zealous for the Jewish faith. In his mind, Christianity was a plague. It was a cancer of false teaching which was spreading and growing amongst the Jewish people of that day. And like any disease, Saul's view, Saul's opinion was that Christianity should be dealt with swiftly and severely and without mercy and so we saw at the beginning of chapter 8 the last chapter that Saul made it his personal mission to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth and and what he did to do that was that he led groups of people and they would go house to house looking for and arresting anyone who espoused to believe these things about Jesus of Nazareth and under threat of imprisonment or even death they would force them to recant their beliefs about Jesus We read in the previous chapter how because of this persecution that Saul was a a leader in, many of the Christians who at that time had been based solely in Jerusalem, they began to flee Jerusalem. They began to run away as refugees into the surrounding regions, the surrounding areas. And we saw how God used those Christian refugees as accidental missionaries and did a great work through them. And Christianity, rather than being destroyed, ended up spreading very quickly in all directions. And we see here that the Christian refugees from Jerusalem had made their way up to Damascus. Now Damascus is the closest big city to Jerusalem. It's 130 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And Damascus has always been a multicultural, multi-ethnic city. And it had historically a large Jewish population. So we see that some of the Christian community, uh, the Christian refugees had made their way up there. They had talked about Jesus and a Christian community was developing there in the city of Damascus. And so Paul, he says, well, you know, what used to be just a local problem is now becoming even an international problem to him with this Christian movement movement spreading so he says I've got to go to Damascus I've got to go find out if there are any there who believe these things about Jesus and I need to obliterate Christianity but as we've seen his plan to get rid of Christianity it had always the opposite effect rather than destroying Christianity it just caused it to spread and grow So here we see Saul once again, it says he is breathing threats, he's breathing murder against the disciples of the Lord. The picture we get is of a man who is acting more like an animal than a human. He's angry, he's violent, he's absolutely convinced of the rightness of his own cause. And here he is on his way to Damascus, a six-day journey from Jerusalem, right? He's walking six days. That's how insanely, intensely committed he was to persecuting and doing everything he could to get rid of Christianity. We see here that Saul, he was carrying out his work under the authority of the high priest. At this time, the high priest was a man named Caiaphas. And just an interesting side note here, in 1990, a ossuary was found of that belonged to Caiaphas and his family. I think I have a photo of it even here for you. And, and the reason this is an interesting find is because this is the first, uh, first concrete find they found of a person who is mentioned in the Bible. They found archaeological evidence of it, which just bolsters our confidence in Scripture. So Caiaphas, he's the man who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. This is the man who oversaw the the persecution, the beating of the apostles, and now Caiaphas is giving these letters, you know, enabling Paul, empowering Paul or Saul to go to the city of Damascus. These are what we would call letters of extradition, right? In other words, Saul is is going there with these letters of extradition to find Christians 
arrest them and extradite them to Jerusalem where they will stand trial and they will be punished for their crimes, their supposed crime. Now what was this supposed crime that these people had committed? Their crime was that they believed in Jesus and they belonged to the way. That's what it's called there in verse 2. And I love that term, the way. You know, this is what Christianity was originally called. Before it was called Christianity, it was known by this name, the way. You know, we're going to see later on in the book of Acts how that word Christian, how the term Christianity actually came about. But before Christianity was called Christianity, the disciples of Jesus, this movement, it was called The Way. And I, I like that name because here's what it implies. It implies that Christianity, being a Christian, it, it's more than just a set of doctrines that you believe. It's a way of life. It's a way of living and a way of believing and thinking. If there's one thing, though, that you can say about Saul of Tarsus, it's that he was the last person in the world who was a candidate to become a Christian. Saul hated Christians. Saul was convinced that Christianity was a cancer that needed to be eradicated. The last thing Saul wanted was to become a Christian. You know, a lot of times, that, it makes me think, because a lot of times you hear people talk about how they found God, right? They were they were looking for God really hard as if it's a kind of a game of hide and seek and God was hiding somewhere really hard to find and they just kept trying and trying and trying and finally they persevered and they found God. Now it's a great and wonderful thing when people are seeking God but here's the thing, what about all the people out there who aren't seeking God? Because I'll tell you what, there's, there's quite a lot of them. What about people who don't want anything to do with Jesus? What about people who, don't, who aren't interested? They don't want to hear it because that's who Saul of Tarsus was. And maybe you know people like that in your own life. Maybe you're married to somebody like that, right? Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's a child, a grown child or a dear friend. They don't want anything to do with it, right? They don't want anything to do with Jesus. They're not interested. They don't want to hear about it. Maybe they're even aggressively opposed to it, right? You know what it's like. You have those people in your family and they make a scene at the family gatherings at Thanksgiving when you want to pray for the food and they make a, you know, make a scene about it. I have people in my own extended family who... You know, because I'm a pastor, because I'm a Christian, they are so adamantly opposed to Christianity that they just don't really have anything to do with me. And if you can relate to that, if you have someone in your life who you love with all your heart and you wish so much that they would embrace the gospel, but it just seems like a lost cause, then I want you to pay close attention to this story. If you would have asked Christians in that day about Saul, they would have said, Saul, that guy? No, that guy's a lost cause. I mean, he's completely hardened his heart. He's totally closed to the idea of even considering Jesus. But what we're going to see is that even though Saul didn't believe in Jesus, even though Saul hated Jesus, Jesus loved Saul. And Jesus hadn't given up on Saul, even though Saul didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And even though Saul wasn't seeking Jesus, Jesus was seeking Saul. You see, that's good news. See, Saul was decided against Jesus. But what's so amazing, what's so wonderful, what's so surprising is that even though Saul had decided against Jesus, Jesus had decided for Saul. You see, and that, that brings us to our second point, the God who pursues. Okay, please read with me from verse 3. Here's what happened on that road to Damascus. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. This is Saul of Tarsus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. 
Somewhere on the outskirts of Damascus, Saul had an encounter with the very last person in the world that he ever expected to meet. And this encounter, it changed his mind and it changed his life. This experience was not something Saul was looking for. It was not something Saul was seeking after. It wasn't something he wanted to have. And it was completely outside the box of what Saul even believed was possible. You see, most rabbis at this time actually taught that God no longer spoke to man directly. And that there was no such thing as divine revelation, at least not in that day anymore. They said that was a thing of the past. Past eras gone by. But now God... God doesn't speak to people directly. God doesn't do divine revelation anymore. And Saul probably shared that opinion. It was the widely held view of the day. But here he is and he's experiencing something that he doesn't even believe is possible. Something supernatural, a divine revelation. God's speaking to him directly. Saul didn't believe in Jesus. In Saul's opinion, Jesus was a dead man who was killed and rightly so because he was a blasphemer. But here's Jesus risen and speaking to him. Saul doesn't believe in vision. Saul doesn't believe in supernatural stuff. But here it is and it's happening to him. What can he do? You see, Saul was decided against Jesus, but Jesus had decided for Saul. I tell you what, that is good news. Because what it says is this, that God loved Saul so much that God pursued him. God went after him. God got his attention by knocking him on the ground. Because that's what it took to get this man's attention. You know, sometimes you'll hear people talk about how, you know, God loves you and he makes the gospel available to you. But, you know, if you don't want it, well, then, if you're not interested, you know, I mean, God's, God's cool with that. I mean, what's he going to do, right? He's not going to hassle you over it. Or he's not going to bother you. You know, he's just kind of, he's like a telephone solicitor, right? He's just kind of putting it out there. But if you say no thanks, then he says, okay, cool, I got it. I'll just move on, right? But the thing is, that's not the picture of God that we get here, is it? Saul of Tarsus, he heard about Jesus, and he didn't say no thanks. He said, no way, no way will I ever believe that. No way will I ever follow him. In fact, I will do everything in my power to oppose Christianity. But Jesus didn't just say, okay, Saul, that's cool. I'll just move on and do something else. I was just letting you know about the opportunity, you know. No pressure. Sorry for bugging you. No, Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm going to go after you. I, even though you don't want me, I want you. And God pursued Saul. And we could say that he violently confronted him in a way that challenged everything that Saul previously thought and believed about Jesus and about Christianity. He knocked him to the ground. He made him blind so he couldn't see. And he spoke to him in an audible voice and said, Saul, what are you doing? You know, maybe you're here today. Maybe some people will listen to this on the radio. And you have decided against Jesus. But in spite of that, let me tell you this. Maybe Jesus has decided for you. And it's time for you to wake up to that fact. I love this story because here's the thing. Saul didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose Saul. But here's the thing I want you to notice. Even though Jesus chose Saul, Saul still had to choose Jesus. That's what we're going to see in this next section. You see, the story of Saul's encounter with Jesus, it's actually told three times here in the book of Acts. This is the first, uh, the first time. And then we're going to see this story told again in Acts 22 and again in Acts chapter 26. This story is also mentioned two or three times in other places in the New Testament. In other words, this is a story that God wants to make sure that you know about. And, and why? Because I'll tell you this, what happened to Saul, it's not an everyday occurrence, but yet there is a way in which this story is true for each and every one of us. 
Because truly, this is the story of the gospel. The Bible tells the story of how God created all things. He created man and woman. He put them in a paradise, and they knew him, and they walked with him, but they rebelled against him. They rejected God. But their rejection of God, it didn't change the fact that God loved them. God never stopped loving them. And he loved them so much that he pursued them. He pursued them. He pursued us. He pursued you to the ends of the earth. To the radical extent of leaving heaven to come to earth. Becoming like us. Dwelling among us. Speaking our language. Walking our streets. And finally dying as one of us in our place in order to save us. You see, this is the story of the gospel. This is the story that's true for each and every one of us. It's the story in in each of your lives. God has pursued you. You see, it's not that God is hiding. If anything, it's that we are hiding from God. But the good news of the gospel is that God is a God who pursues because that's how much he cares. That's how much he loves. I'm sure many of you could tell stories of how you weren't even looking for God in your life, but yet it seemed that God pursued you. God drew you to himself. You see, here's what the Bible says. It says in Romans chapter 3, this kind of radical statement, right? It says, there is none who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Now that's so, such a strong statement, is it? What is that talking about? What it's talking about is that for all people, our natural inclination is not to seek God, but to run from God, to rebel against God. And that's what Saul was doing, like Saul. But here's the good news of the gospel. That no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've rebelled against God, no matter how many regrettable things you've done, God still loves you. God hasn't given up on you. And God won't just passively wait for you to come to him. No, God is a God who pursues. And he will pursue you. He will do whatever it takes to get your attention. Even if that means knocking you down. Even if that means blinding you for three days. You know, maybe in your own life you can say that I can see that God has tried to get my attention before, right? God has sent circumstances into your life that knock you down, that make you dizzy, that set you flat on your back where you, you can't even see straight anymore. You're disoriented. Now, do you know why God is doing this to Saul? Why is he pursuing him? Why is he knocking him down? Why is he getting his attention? Is it because he's angry at Saul? No, not at all. Quite the opposite. It's because God loves Saul. That's why he's intervening in Saul's life. That's why he's doing whatever it takes to get Saul's attention. He says, Saul, Saul. You know, when it, whenever you see that in the Bible where you see a name or someone calling out to someone twice, what that, you know, the connotation there in the Bible is that this communicates a sense of passion, a sense of fervency. And this is an impassioned plea from Jesus to Saul. Saul, Saul. God is trying to get this man's attention. Now the question is, I think he's got his attention now, right? I mean, he knocked him down, made him blind, light shone all around. He's got his attention. The question is now, how will Saul respond? Because remember what I said just a minute ago. Saul didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose Saul, but yet Saul still had to choose Jesus. You see, the question is, now that Jesus has got Saul's attention, what's Saul going to do? How is Saul going to respond? And I wonder if any of you in here, maybe God has done something in your life in order to get your attention. How will you respond? Because yes, God pursues, but yet at the same time, a response is required of us. And I want you to see next how Saul responds. 
now that God has his attention. He responds in a wonderful way. I'm gonna read you this verse from the New King James Version uh, and I'll tell you why in a second. So here's how this verse, these two verses, verses five and six go in the New King James. It says this. He, Saul, he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now the reason I read this verse out of this version is because the New King James Version and the King James Version, they both include two lines in verses five and six which are not found in other translations. And some of you will even have little notes in your Bible that say, you know, the, these words are included in some translations. Now we can be sure that these words were indeed spoken because they're found in the two other accounts of the same events in Acts chapter 22 and 26 so we can be confident that this is what happened but here's what I want you to see that this is Saul's response to when God got his attention in this radical way Saul responded by asking two questions which are vital they're vital questions for every one of us for every human being to ask of God the first question he asked was who are you Lord and the second question he asked is Lord what do you want me to do I think just about everybody has questions that they'd like to ask of God. A Gallup poll was taken several years ago in which people were asked um, to choose three questions that they would ask God if they had the opportunity to ask God a question. And these were the top five responses of the questions that people said they would like to ask God. Number one, they said, will there ever be lasting world peace? The next question is, how can I be a better person? Third question, what, what does the future hold for my family and for myself? Fourth, they asked, you know, will there ever be a cure to all diseases? And the last question, the fifth most popular question that people want to ask God is, why is there suffering in the world? These are the top five questions that people want to ask God. Now, you know what I find interesting about these questions is that in one way or another, all of these questions are answered in the Bible, right? Like we already, God has already answered these questions. Uh, the answers are found in his word. But it, let me tell you this, if you really want to ask some good questions of God, ask these two questions. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? Those are great questions to ask of God. And when God got Saul's attention, Saul responded in the best way possible by asking these two questions, the two questions that all of us must ask of God. Who are you, Lord? Now that seems like a simple enough question, should be simple enough to answer it, but here's the truth. If you really want to know God in all of his mystery and all of his grandeur, if you really want to know his heart, that's a pursuit that will occupy your entire life. This man, Saul of Tarsus, he went on to become known by another name, Paul the Apostle, right? Saul being his Hebrew name, Paul being his Roman name. And this man, Paul the Apostle, he's going to become a missionary. He's going to become a pastor. He's going to be the one who brings the gospel to Europe and shapes history by doing so. He will be used by God to write much of the New Testament scriptures. And this man would write decades after this, later on in his life, that the pursuit of the answer to this question, who are you, Lord? He spent the rest of his life seeking that. 
to know God. He said that was the, the pursuit of his life. Even decades after that, he's still seeking the answer. Who is this one who was revealed to me on the road to Damascus? Who is this one? Paul would write in Philippians 3.10 that this was the goal and the passion of his life. Decades later, he's still saying, I want to know him. I want to know this one who, who appeared to me on the road to Damascus. He's so glorious, so magnificent, so wonderful. I want to know him more. I want to always come back to who he is and what he has done. Who are you, Lord? That's the first question, to say, who are you, Lord? But the second question is this, Lord, what do you want me to do? Have you ever asked that question of God with all sincerity in your heart? I would guess that many people don't ask that question with, with complete sincerity and openness because on some level they're afraid of the answer. But let me tell you this. It is actually the safest, it is the smartest thing you can ever do with your life to ask that question, Lord, what do you want me to do? And let me tell you why. Because God loves you. He has a good plan for your life. He knows what's best for you. And yes, I'll tell you this. If you ask that question, the answer might be that he wants you to do something that you've even been afraid of doing. Maybe he does want you to change something in your life. But let me tell you this. It will be the absolute best and safest and smartest thing you can do. To ask that question with all sincerity, with a heart that is ready to respond to the answer, whatever it might be. So let me encourage you to make these two questions questions the cry of your own heart who are you Lord and Lord what do you want me to do nothing will bring greater joy and deeper happiness in your life than asking those two questions with all sincerity and do you know how I know that because look at what Jesus says to Saul in verse 6 there in that King James version he says this I am Jesus whom you are persecuting it is hard for you to kick against the goads so this heavenly light shines around Saul and he's confronted with the true nature of his crime that he has actually not only been sinning against these Christian people, but he's been sinning against God himself. You see, Saul has been waging this outward attack against the Christians, but that's just the outward expression of what's really going on in his heart. Inside his heart, he has this inward battle that he's fighting against God. In his heart, Saul is at war with God. Now, how many of you know what I'm talking about? You've been there before. Maybe you're even there right now on some level. You're at war with God in your heart. You're resisting what you know God wants for you. You're fighting against him. And Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? So what, what that means, that what, he's painting a picture there with his words. You see, a goad is a sharp stick that a farmer would use to, when he's plowing, right, to get an ox going the way he wanted him to go. If the ox started going off the wrong way, he'd poke him and prod him until the ox started going the other way. If the farmer, you know, he, he would jab him with it and it would be uncomfortable, even a little bit painful, but it would get the ox moving in the way the farmer wanted him to go. So the picture uh, Jesus is painting here for Saul, he's saying, I'm the farmer and you're the ox and you are so stubbornly refusing to do what God wants you to do, which is to embrace Jesus. You see, God has been goading him. God has been prodding him to get him moving in this direction, the direction God wants him to go. But Saul has been resisting, even kicking against the goad, which is something which causes even more pain. I mean, kicking against a sharp stick, it just hurts. If you kick against the sharp stick, it doesn't make the guy stop poking you. It just hurts a lot more. 
And this is what Jesus is saying to Saul. Saul, you've been resisting me. And as a result, you're miserable, aren't you? It's not easy kicking against the goads, is it, Saul? You see, something was goading Saul's conscience. Despite all of his outward appearance of confidence, despite his claims that he didn't believe in Jesus, that he hated the Christians, there was something in his conscience that was goading him, that was pricking him, that was bothering him inside. And, and maybe, you know, maybe he was wondering, maybe this is true. Maybe this Jesus is who they say he is. Maybe, maybe I'm the one who's actually doing the wrong thing. And I think about so many people today, right? People who seem so confident in their rejection of Jesus. But yet, let me tell you this. Something is goading their conscience. They feel that tinge. They feel that pain inside that, that maybe there is that question mark in their head. Maybe there is something to this whole Christian thing. Maybe, maybe God is trying to get my attention. Even though everybody outside, nobody on the outside would know it. Inside they feel the goading of their conscience, the knowledge that they need a savior, that they need to be forgiven and made right with God and that Jesus did what it takes to make that possible. And I want you to hear the compassion in Jesus' words. He's saying, Saul, why are you doing this? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this, Saul? It is hard for you. I know it is. Come on, Saul, enough's enough. Why are you bringing all this pain and misery into your life by resisting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. It's hard to resist God. And that's why nothing, I tell you this, nothing will bring you greater joy and deeper happiness in your life than asking those two questions with all sincerity. Lord, who are you? I want to know you, Lord. And Lord, what do you want me to do? You see, these questions are the beginning of Saul's surrender. He's been at war with God. He's been resisting like a stubborn ox, resisting where God wants to take him. But now as Saul asks these two questions, this is the mark, this is the beginning of surrender. And let me tell you what, there is nothing better than surrendering to God. Resisting him, it's like kicking against the goads, but surrendering to him, that's when life really begins. And that brings us to our final section here where we see a changed man. Please read with me from verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This man who had come to Damascus with so much power, in, inciting so much fear in the hearts of the Christians, now he's having to be, have his hand held as he's walked into the city of Damascus. And as he gets there, he spends the first three days refusing to eat or drink. In my opinion, he's fasting. He probably needed that time to process everything that had happened to him because it was so outside of the box for him, right? Needing time to pray about what had happened to him on that road. Needing time to talk to God and, and mull it all over. You see, for him to embrace Jesus, this would be a complete shift in everything he had thought, everything he had believed, everything he, he thought he stood for. And we don't know exactly when it happened, but at some point during those three days in darkness, Saul chose Jesus. Verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus, a certain disciple named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. 
This man, Ananias, I'll tell you what, he is one of the great unsung heroes of the Bible, and I'll show you why. Read with me from verse 11. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. This street called Straight, it's a street that still exists in Damascus to this day. And Ananias is sent there with instructions to look for this one guy's house and go inside and look for this man, Saul of Tarsus. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. You see, Ananias is understandably hesitant about what God is asking him to do. I mean, the Christians there in Damascus, they knew who Saul was. They had fled from Jerusalem because of this man who was, you know, hurting their friends, hurting their family members. They had probably been expecting Saul's arrival in Damascus at any time. They were probably bracing themselves and planning, what are we going to do when this guy gets here? I mean, maybe some of them had even been so bold as to pray for Saul, that God would intervene, that God would speak to him, that God would come into his life and save him, and that Saul would embrace Jesus and stop persecuting Christians. But of course, they found that, you know, they prayed for it, but yet, you know how it is. It still seems so incredibly unlikely. For Ananias to go pray for Saul, this is something that would be incredibly risky. I mean, what if Saul's faking it? What if he's just trying to infiltrate the church so he can hurt him even more? This man who's, who has attacked Christians, who has had Christians executed, now he's supposedly changed? I mean, how, how is Ananias supposed to know if this is for real? But I love what we read about in Ananias in verse 10. It says that he was a disciple. Other translations say he was a certain disciple. Now I love that because here's what it is. He's not a pastor. He's not an elder. He's just a Christian. He's a Christian. He's the one who gets tapped on the shoulder by God to go and do this momentous thing of welcoming Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of Christians, into God's family. See, that's how it works with God. You don't have to be, have a title. You don't have to have a position to be used by God. You can just be a certain disciple. And if you're willing to respond when God taps you on the shoulder, God will use you in great ways. So Ananias, he has these reservations about what God is asking him to do. And God responds, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my for the sake of my name. Saul is going to become a trophy of God's grace, a shining symbol for all the world to see, for generations to come, that God does indeed change people, that if you put your faith in Jesus, your life can change. You can become a new person. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you hear what Ananias said to Saul? It's beautiful, isn't it? He calls him Brother Saul. This man who terrorized his family and his friends. This one who hated him just three days earlier. Ananias has so much grace and so much forgiveness in his heart, so much love in his heart that he's able to call Saul Brother Saul. 
You see, that is what the gospel does. When you really believe the gospel, when you let it sink in deep down in your heart, it makes you able to forgive deeply. It makes you able to love radically, to love people who don't deserve for you to love them because you understand that you have received grace. You have received love and forgiveness even though you didn't deserve it. But God has loved you so much. He has given himself for you and that love and that grace, it changes your heart. Verse 18 and 19, let's finish the section. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Saul was a changed man. He was baptized. He was baptized in the name of Jesus. He was baptized as a believer, as a follower of Jesus. We're gonna see uh, in our study even more next week how much this man's life was changed. This man Saul, the persecutor of Christians, he will become known by a different name. He will become known as Paul, Paul the Apostle. Now why the difference in names? I mentioned earlier that you know Saul is a very... Hebrew name and that Paul is a Roman it's a Latin name but I think there's more to it than that you see uh, they have also different meanings Saul in Hebrew it means desired one and, and the word Paul in Latin it means small it means little you see as a result of what happened on the road to Damascus Saul of Tarsus became a changed man and his old name didn't fit anymore he would later write these words himself. Later on, he would say in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 5, he'd say, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new. And you can't help but see that Paul is thinking of himself as he writes those words. During those three days that Saul was in darkness, Saul of Tarsus died in a sense. And he was born again as a new person as he put his faith in Jesus Christ. As he acknowledged his sin, as he repented, as he asked God to forgive him, as he received that forgiveness and a new beginning and a new life from God. And he was such a different person that the old name just didn't fit anymore. He was a new man, so much so that he no longer wanted to be associated with who he was as Saul of Tarsus, a man who resisted God, a man who hated and hurt other people. You see this with many people in the Bible, that they have an encounter with God and they're so changed by it, they're such a different person that their old name just doesn't fit anymore. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob, right, scoundrel, he becomes Israel, ruled by God. Simon, shifting sand, right, a shifty character. Who does he become? He becomes Peter, a rock upon which God will build his church. Saul, desired one, sought after, becomes Paul. Little, small. You see, Saul had been so convinced before that he was a good person, that he was morally superior to others. But on that road to Damascus, he encounters Jesus and his mind and his heart is changed. His mind was changed. How he thought about himself was changed. How he thought about Jesus was changed. He realized that he's a sinner and he realized that Jesus is his savior. Saul of Tarsus was transformed into a new man as he received the grace of God. His life was a testimony to how God changes people. How God loves, he pursues, even when when people don't love him even when people don't pursue him you see he's a testimony of how Jesus even chooses those who don't choose him but yet we still have to choose Jesus right you see Jesus pursued Saul but yet Saul still had to make a choice would he give up resisting God or would he surrender his life to God would he continue thinking the way he had about Jesus or would he change his mind about Jesus and let me tell you that this is all true of each and every one of us here today you and I have a choice to make. 
Will, will we choose to ask those two simple questions with all sincerity and earnestness in our hearts? Who are you, Lord? I want to know you. And second, Lord, what do you want me to do? I would encourage you today, make those two questions the prayer of your heart. And don't just ask those questions this day, but make them the central pursuit of your life. Amen? Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great picture we have of how you pursued Saul of Tarsus. And Lord, in this, we see the fact of of how you have pursued us. How it's not our love for you, Lord, that came first, but it's your love for us, that you came after us. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you love us that much, that you would pursue us and come after us. And Lord, may we respond the way that, that Saul of Tarsus responded so well, asking those two so vital and important questions. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? Lord, those are the questions we ask today as well. We pray that this story of Saul, that it would be the story of each of us, Lord. That as we ask those questions, as we surrender the fight against you, Lord, that you would make us into new people. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.